So last week, in, uh, in, in the section that we handled, uh, we were talking about taking off of the old self and putting on the new self. Uh, and this is a continuation of that idea where Paul takes that, that, um, that, that skeleton and puts some meat on the bones. So let's, uh, let's read together. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let him speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul gives us here um, what can seem like at first glance a series of somewhat disconnected commands. Uh, but really there's a, there's, there's a framework here that fits so well. Um, Ephesians is a book as a whole that's about unity within the body of Christ. And this chapter specifically uh, is about, generally speaking, taking off that old self and putting on the new self. So we're called to take off the old, to put off the old self and put on the new self. And Paul gives us this, this, these very concrete applications as to how that can play out or how that should be playing out in our lives. Uh, he gives us negative commands. So a negative command is stop doing this. Uh, and he gives us those because what he's telling us to stop doing creates division within the body. Those are part of our old self that we're supposed to take off. So old self, stop doing that because it creates division. And the, and the contrast to that uh, is, are these positive commands. Do this. That is part of your new self. That creates unity within the body. So we have these negative commands. Stop. Old self, division, and the positive commands, do this, that's part of your new self, it creates unity. And additionally, each one of these commands teaches us about who God is and what we are apart from him. So the positive commands, those things that we are supposed to be doing, tell us about who God is and who he is shaping and molding us into. The negative commands tell us who we are apart from God. That is who that old self is that we're taking off. So we look at the first one of these commands. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So this is basically a restatement of uh, the ninth commandment. 
right? Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Just as an aside, Paul was a uh, very diligent student of the scriptures, uh, and all throughout his writing, but especially through these six commands, are woven some of some of these ideas and some of these phrasings from the Old Testament. Uh, so when, when we come across those, I'll, I'll, I'll pull them out. Uh, so Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, and then the exact wording, that, or, or one of the phrases that Paul uses, comes from Zechariah, where God is telling his people what he expects of them. Uh, this is Zechariah 8, 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. And this is the important part. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So God hates falsehood. God hates lies. And Jesus brought, brought that into clearer contrast, again, when he said in, in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus is the truth, and he contrasts that um, with, with the devil. Um, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The devil is a liar and the father of lies. So the negative command that we see here is, is very clear. Put away falsehood. Don't tell lies. Um, and this creates, uh, the, these, these falsehoods, telling lies, can create divisions between us and God because essentially what we are trying to do is we are saying, God, your reality as you have provided it is not good enough. I think I can, I can do better. And we tell a lie. It's not something that's true. It doesn't reflect reality. So we think that we can come up with a better reality than God did. And those falsehoods also create divisions between us because as we fail to tell the truth, whatever is motivating that lie, we're placing that above our relationships with each other. Now each one of these could be a full sermon in and of themselves. So if it seems like I'm glossing over something or moving right along, it's because I am. It's an act of mercy. Uh, <laughs> um, so when, so as we t fail to tell the truth, it is what we're saying is that it's more important that I am comfortable. It's more important that I get what I want than it is for you to understand the truth. Because remember, as, as we said a few weeks ago, we are to speak the truth in love. And so what this command reveals about us is it shows us when we are following after, it shows us those times that we are following after the father of lies rather than following after the truth who was made flesh. It shows us that we care more about ourselves than other people. So falsehood, lies, reveal to us who we serve. So that was the negative command. The positive command, as he expressed earlier, was speak the truth in love. 
So not all of these show up exactly here, but they're all implied, and, and we're going to fill in the mis missing pieces a little bit. So the positive command is to speak the truth in love. And this creates unity, because as we speak the truth in love, we grow together into Christ, who is the truth. And each of us is moved forward on that journey that we're taking. And the body is built up into the unity of Christ. So by speaking the truth in love, we all grow and we mature. So this reveals something about God. It reveals that God is truth. And it reveals that God hates falsehood. And so we take this negative command and this positive command, and we see when we apply it to our lives that even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's costly, we have to speak the truth. And part of that is we especially need to speak the truth to ourselves. Because when we live our lives based on a lie that we're telling ourselves, we become what the Bible calls different places, double-minded. We have to hold the reality that we know that God has, has created. And then we also have to hold the lie that we have told ourselves. So we need to be willing to speak the truth to others. We need to be willing to speak the truth to ourselves. And we need to be willing to have the truth spoken to us. That's perhaps, for me, one of the most uncomfortable, difficult parts of this passage is the implication that if everybody is speaking the truth in love, occasionally those hard truths will come back on me. I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. I don't like to be wrong to begin with, but I don't like other people to tell that to me. Scripture hurts in different ways at different times, doesn't it? <clears throat> uh, moving on, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, the way that the uh, NIV renders this is, is helpful, I think. Uh, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Uh, and so, but Paul phrases it this way because he's quoting a passage from Psalm 4 where it says, um, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So the psalmist is saying here that the correct response to anger is to place your trust in the Lord, to know that he holds all things in his hands and to trust him to be God. Uh, Paul writes in, in Romans 12 as, as an extension of this idea, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when, when we take these, these two ideas and we put them together, what we see is that, is that anger and, and vengeance specifically essentially is, again, idolatry. We are trying to take on ourselves a job that God has reserved for himself. So you're placing yourself in a position 
that position of vengeance, that position of wrath and anger that God has reserved for himself and for himself alone. James writes it this way. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But the anger of man, rather, leads to bitterness. And it says in, in Hebrews 12 um, that the root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Have you seen that in people's lives? They hang on to something that they're angry about, that they're upset about, and it, and it eats away at them. And that bitterness then comes out in other areas of their lives, completely unrelated to whatever they were angry about, but they can't help it. That root of bitterness has sprung up and causes trouble. So the negative command here, in your anger, do not sin. So when we are angry with each other or with God, we're ultimately placing our own self-righteousness, our own rights, our ability to be right, our feelings, our opinions, over those of the other person. We're placing our desire for justice over their need for mercy and grace. And this tells us something about ourselves. It can reveal to us that we lack self-control, which in Galatians is listed as a fruit of having the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And it reveals to ourselves it reveals to us that we are still placing ourselves over other people. Our anger is fundamentally self-centered. But the positive command here is encouraging to me. Uh, it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So resolve your disputes quickly and in a fashion befitting a child of God. We see this uh, specifically laid out in, in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Christian conflict resolution, resolving conflicts in the way of Christ, is, at least initially, direct, one-on-one. -on -one. It's immediate, it happens right away, and it's private. So this is in contrast to um, <laughs> uh, the world that we see. And this is, you see beautiful examples of this every single day on Facebook, where the world's conflict resolution is passive aggressive, it's delayed, and it's public. You know, so you have people who are talking about how they were wronged, and people, you know, months ago and years ago, and I can't believe that that happened, and I can't believe that that somebody took advantage of me this way and I'm still just so angry about it. And that's the way of the world. That is not the way of Christ. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And there's also a path provided here for those things that either don't affect us directly or that can't be handled like that. 
In Psalm 4, 5, put your trust in the Lord. You worry about you, I worry about me and my walk, and we let God be God. We let God worry about those other areas that we've been wronged. We can trust God to do the right thing. He is just. And so we need to put our trust in the Lord as a response to anger. So the positive command here creates unity. In Matthew 18, it says, you have gained your brother. So when we put aside our anger in love and mercy and forgiveness and obedience, we model Christ. Christ, who has forgiven us much. Another way to look at it is this. If the sin of your brother against you was paid for in the eyes of God by Christ's death on the cross, if God views his sin no longer, what right do you have to hold on to your anger for longer than God has? Do you have more right than God to be angry with this person? Do you have more right than God does to justice in this situation? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is no. We have no right. We have no ability to be more angry than God, to be angry for longer than God is. Because God is a God of forgiveness and of grace putting our sins as far as the east is from the west. The uh, New Bible Commentary, as their header for this section, has in big, bold letters, If you become angry, beware. You are at sin's door. So if you become angry, when somebody sins against you, handle it directly. Handle it immediately and handle it privately. And if it's not worth doing that, or if it's not possible to do that, put your trust in the Lord. Trust that he will make all things right. It may not happen immediately. It may happen on his time and not on ours. but you may put your trust in the Lord and not be disappointed. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So this is essentially the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Um, and, and we've talked about this once before at some point, uh, how stealing represents a fundamental mistrust of God's provision for us. It says, God got that wrong when he gave you that. It was supposed to go to me, and so I'm just going to go ahead and take it. Jesus said in, in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the work of the thief and the work of Christ here are diametrically opposed to one another. They cannot exist in the same person. And so we have this negative command, stop stealing. 
because it creates division between man and, and fellow man by showing that you are placing your perceived need above the needs of other people. And this shows us, again, our fundamental selfishness, our fundamental self-centeredness. But the positive command, work, to be able to share with one another, does just the opposite. It creates unity because when each one of us is working, using the gifts that God has given us, the body is built up. There was a work that only Christ could do. And he did that at great cost to himself, but great benefit to us. But knowing the cost and knowing the benefit, he chose to become subject to death, even death on a cross. And so we should be pursuing fair and honest work vocationally. And we should also be working that all that we do, all that we do, we do because God has gifted us for it. Whether that is vocationally, whether that is interpersonally, um, we do because God has gifted us for it. And it should be used to build up the body by sharing the fruit of that labor with each other whether that's cards, whether that's encouragement, whether that's money, whether that's homes or cars, um, we need to be working to share the fruit of our labor with each other. Verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, so there's a, there's a few different words here. That word corrupting, uh, that's used elsewhere in the New Testament for, for things that are rotten, for fish and for fruit. Uh, so no, let no words that will cause rot to come out of your mouth. Uh, and when it says, as, as fits the occasion, uh, this is something that requires some amount of, of discernment and sensitivity. You have to be able to understand a little bit of what's going on in somebody else's life. Um, to be able to um, to be able to help build them up, uh, and there's and there's one more phrase here that really kind of hit me this week, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now Paul uses this idea of giving grace quite often because the word that he uses for grace can also mean gift, uh, and so that grace is a gift. And our words should be received as a gift by those who hear them. Uh, that, that really has been sitting hard with me. Uh, because while, while I don't intend to have corrupt, corrupting words come out of my mouth, are my words always a gift to those who hear them? We've known people like that, right? That it's, it's a joy, it's an encouragement to talk to them, to have a conversation with them. Even if it was a hard conversation, you come away from it feeling loved, feeling built up. Their words are a gift to us. And I've been convicted over the past week 
to have my words be a gift to all of those who hear them. So the negative command here, let no rotten talk come out of your mouth, because that rotten talk creates division. Uh, if there's a flaw in a piece of wood that's being used to construct something, if there's a flaw in the paint on a car, these rotten spots, these corrupt spots are weak points, right? Those are where the fractures and decay will develop in that wood or, or on that metal. And so our rotten words can create flaws and divisions and weak points within the body. Uh, Paul writes in, in Romans 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So our corrupt talk tears down what God has commanded we build, the unity of the body. And our speech reveals something very telling about us. Uh, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the condition of our hearts is revealed by what comes out of our mouths. Rotten, corrupt talk reveals a rotten, corrupt heart. But as much as our rotten and corrupt talk can divide, we also have the opportunity to build up with our speech. In Proverbs 12, it says, uh, rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Are our words bringing healing? Are our words a gift to those who hear them? Words of encouragement, words of affirmation, of exhortation, but also rebuke and of calling to repentance. Our words should be seasoned with such grace and such love that they are received as a gift by their hearers, that, they, that everybody who hears them is built up. And this creates unity, because as the body is built up, it is built up into one man, into Christ. If you remember in uh, chapter 2, this is, in, this is verses 13 and 17, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So we were far off, but Christ came and preached peace. He spoke of a gift that would reconcile, a gift that would build up one new man in place of the two. We see in Christ the word made flesh spoken to bring us to him. The words that he speak, the words that he speaks, 
reconcile. They build up. And so we need to emulate him in that. Our words need to reconcile. Our words need to build up and not create the opportunity for division and disunity. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this is an allusion to uh, Isaiah 63 where it says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit Therefore, turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So God had lifted up the nation of Israel. He had redeemed them. He had loved them. He had carried them. But they still rebelled. And their rebellion grieved the Holy Spirit. So it's important to note that God is grieved by our disobedience. So if we are walking after Christ, if we have chosen him, The things that grieve God should grieve us as well. So when we are disobedient, that grieves the Holy Spirit. That should grieve us as well. So our response to sin in our lives should be in line with God's response to sin. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So inasmuch as we are one body, what grieves the Holy Spirit about one of us should grieve all of us. And when we cause our brother or sister to grieve for us or grieve because of us, that does not build unity, but rather divides because we have caused grief to one another. And this shows us that even though we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, we still have the capacity to sin. We still have the capacity to be disobedient even after our salvation. A simple, um, straightforward giving of the positive command we see in Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, So if we have the Spirit in us, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So this positive command, in as much as when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it creates divisions between us because we are grieving each other. If we are each individually keeping in step with the Spirit, then we will all collectively be walking together, won't we? If we are each in step with the Spirit, then we will be in step with each other. We will be walking in unison. And so we see in this that God values our obedience. He values our hearts and he values having our hearts search hard after him. And our disobedience, while it can't separate us from his love, can strain And cause damage to that relationship in the here and in the now. Verses 31 and 32 are are a little bit of a, a summary of some of these ideas. So 
uh, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Uh, so wrath and anger. So wrath as being something external, anger being something internal, uh, clamor, shouting, brawling, or some of the other ways that that's uh, translated. Slander. Um, John Stott writes that there is no place for any of these things in the Christian community. They have to be totally rejected. And we see this. We see this in other people. We see this in ourselves. We don't have the patience. We don't have the willingness to deal with other people in the way that is listed here in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So forgiving here is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing action. And the idea is that we are forgiving on an ongoing basis as quickly and as thoroughly as Christ forgave us. So we have this negative command. Stop doing these things. Stop having these attitudes because all of these malicious intents view God, view others, they view God and they view man as obstacles to be battled over, battled and, and overcome. And our attitude to these so-called obstacles reveals to us our own self-centeredness, our own desire to get our own way. But the positive command, for as much as the negative is ugly, is beautiful. Be kind and tender-hearted. Because when we forgive each other as Christ forgave us, there can't remain any conflict to divide us. There is no sin that Christ has not forgiven us, and so there can remain no sin unforgiven between any one of us. In uh, Matthew 18, there's a parable. Uh, this is Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Remember that we had said that a talent was 20 years wages. So this man owed the king 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. This was justice. This was what this man deserved. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. 10,000 talents forgiven. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So a denarii is one day's wages. He had been just, just been forgiven 10,000 talents, came across a man who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The exact same plea that this man had just delivered to the king. 
Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We have been forgiven for so much and with such depth and with such thoroughness that we cannot possibly let others remain unforgiven. Because what this command reveals about God is his mercy and his forgiveness. And that is what we are to emulate. So when we are wronged, human nature tells us to turn to that first list of behaviors, right? Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. That is what human nature tells us to turn to. But when you are wronged, turn instead to forgiveness as God in Christ forgave you. Now what we find in the first two verses of chapter 5 is um, almost, the, almost the summary or the outflowing of these, of these six commands. Be imitators of God. So what we see in each of these commands is that we learned something about who God was and who we were. And we are to take off our old selves, put on our new selves, and those new selves are supposed to be built in imitation of who God is. And that imitation, it says, is as beloved children. So as children imitate their parents. There's, no, there's only joy in that imitation, right? If you've ever seen a, a, a little boy shaving or pretending to shave, you know, that's not, that's not a trial. That's not a chore. That's a joy. He is joyfully imitating his father. It's not a struggle. It's not a burden. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So this is not, this is not, you know, two separate pieces here, but rather, um, when it says walk in love, that is how we are imitators of God. It explains how a believer is to imitate God. The walk of a believer has to be done in love. We learned that already, right? We need to speak the truth in love. And this asks much of us. It does. I understand that. This is not easy. This is not simple. It is simple. It's just hard. Um, because it asks us to subvert and to submit our own human nature, our own desire to see ourselves lifted up and submit that to the nature of Christ in us. There's two errors that I want to talk about in relation to these things um, before we close today. There's two errors. One of them is salvation by works. So we read this passage and we see, okay, these are the rules that I need to keep 
This is what I need to do in order to be good with God. And as long as I do my best to be the sort of person that's described here, I'll be okay. Right? But ultimately, this standard is impossible to keep. I'm sure that we've failed in some, in some of these respects just as we've been here together. There has only ever been one man who has kept this standard perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. He met this standard, living a life perfectly in alignment with God's requirements, which qualified him to stand as a sacrifice in our place. So when he died on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved for every time that we have fallen short of this standard. So we credited to him our sin, and he credited to us his righteousness, so that we would no longer be judged by God in accordance with how well we have met this standard, because we haven't even come close, but rather we are judged by how well he met the standard which is perfectly. Uh, we, we read this verse together earlier, uh, and I like the way that the New Living Translation renders it. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So we want earn out our salvation by keeping these commands. Our salvation was earned by Jesus Christ on our behalf. However, this leads to the second error, which I'll call cheap grace. Jesus paid for my sins, so I get to live however it is that I want, and God has to forgive me. Paul specifically addressed this in, in Romans 6, uh, when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I just keep sinning and living however I want so that God's grace will cover that sin? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So when we repent, when we turn aside, when we follow after Christ, we, in essence, die. That's what we remember in baptism, right? We are baptized into his death in anticipation of his resurrection. Our old self is dead. Our old self is crucified with Christ. And it's a new life that we lead. So these behaviors, these attitudes, this standard that has been given to us and to the world, it's been given as a sign of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, as a testament to the work done by the Son on the cross and the mercy and the grace that the Father poured out. So these are concrete ways that we should be able to see God working in us, God working on us, and God working through us. These behaviors should be made evident in our lives as we put off the old self and we put on the new self. We should be imitating God as beloved children, mimicking his every move, trying to do it better, trying to be more like him with every repetition. And this happens slowly, right? It happens over time. Sometimes it happens very slowly. But we should be able to see progress. 
And when we see these things, when we see this progress in ourselves, we should glorify God for the work that he has done in us. And when we see these things lived out in the lives of other people, we should glorify God for his work in them. That's one of the reasons that it's so important for us to live in community with each other, is so that we can see it. We can see God at work in the lives of other people and be encouraged. And other people can be encouraged by God at work in our lives. Because if all we ever do is come to the same physical location and sit and then go home, where is the opportunity for us to see the work of God in our lives? Where is the opportunity for us to be an encouragement and to be encouraged by what God is doing in other people? So if we do not see these things playing out in our lives, if you do not see these things playing out in your life, have we hardened our hearts? Have we been deceiving ourselves and saying that we follow Christ when in reality we're just trying to cut our own trail, to make our own way? Do you see this? Do you see these things playing out? Do you see these positive commands more and more, day by day, year by year, playing out in your life? Let's pray. Father, if we were left to comply with the standard that you set on our own, God, we would have no hope. There is no way that we can go, even for a moment, God, in perfect submission to who you are under our own power, God. But you are gracious and you are merciful and you have given us not just justification, not just the hope of your coming, God. But you have given us your Holy Spirit at work in us, at work on us, so that we might be able to see in ourselves, we might be able to see in other people, and others may be able to see in us your work your love in action played out in our lives. Father, we love you. And we ask that we ask that you would conform us, that you would shape us and mold us with each passing day more and more into the likeness of Christ. And we look forward to the day when that work is complete, when you return and we live with you in a new creation in glory. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.